Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the unceded stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge Elders past and present and extend my respect to First Nations people listening today. Today is May 26th, which marks Sorry Day in this country, um, a day to reflect on and, and really listen to the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, families um, and communities that are affected by the stolen generations. Today we remember that this gross mistreatment um, was a result of government policy which saw the removal of Aboriginal children from their homes. And Sorry Day began in 1998, so just over 20 years ago, Uh, a pretty uh, important reminder of just how recent this history is that we are talking about. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Today on the show, I'll be joined by the Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival, Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh, to speak about this year's festival. And they've got an incredible program, as always. This year does mark the 18th year of the festival, um, and it's one of my favourites. So I'm very excited to speak to Ruby. And later on in the show, I'll be joined by writer and scholar from the Driftpile Cree Nation, Billy Ray Belcourt, uh, to speak about his new collection of personal essays called History of My Brief Body. Quite an exquisite collection, so very much looking forward to speaking with Billy Ray. I hope you can stay with me for the next hour here on Triple R. The Emerging Writers Festival connects storytellers across the globe to showcase their talents, tell their tales and share insights and experiences in a program filled with discovery, learning and delight. It does exist to develop, nurture and promote Australia's new writing talent, creating platforms for connecting writing communities and their audiences. The 2021 program marks the 18th year for the festival with more than 50 in-person and digital events to attend and joining me to speak all about it. I have wonderful artistic director, Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh. Ruby, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks for having me, Beth. Um, kind of bummed that we couldn't do it in person as we planned, but yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to chat. It's uh, it's always wonderful to have you on and talk about the great work that EWF has been doing. I can only imagine that programming for this year's festival has been uh, a big change from kind of where we were 12 months ago. Um, can you tell me what kind of ideas inform the curation of this year's program? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's funny, it's a bit of a mix, um, and I've been reflecting on this lately um, a lot. So some of the like sort of performance events and things like that are things that I've had on my like or or people in our programming team have had on our like, you know, things we'd love to do when we can list for a really long time. And then others are sort of things that have come through the open artist call out, um, which is a really important part of the festival. Um, mm-hmm. because it's not just, you know, 
what artists want to be in, but also what people would benefit from attending in terms of, you know, professional development and things like that um, and who they want to learn from. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the process. It's like, what are we interested in? What is the EWF community interested in? Um, yeah, and there's always sort of, I don't want to say trends, but like, you know, specific interests and following last year, there was a lot of sort of, there were a lot of people in their applications and also, you know, what we were interested in reading and writing ourselves was like introspection, people sort of thinking about their surroundings, um, their very immediate surroundings, their home and things like that, um, and what those mean to them and their community as well. Um, so that was something that, yeah, we really noticed and same with, you know, we've run interdisciplinary and sort of interactive projects and programming for a while, but um, that was something that was had a high level of interest again this year. Mm. I would love to, as you said, talk a little bit about the open call-out. It is such an important part of the way that EWF is put together. And as you said, it's a really fundamental way that you can um, really get insight into what the community that are coming to the festival want, um, as well as, you know, people that want to be programmed in the festival. Um, I, I, can you tell me a little bit about how, you know, how many people you kind of get through that open call-out and how much that informs what the final festival looks like? Yeah, um, so it kind of, and this may come as a surprise, increases every year. <laughs> um, you know, I think this year we got nearly 400 applications, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and the kind of, like, that's really exciting and really great and wonderful. The other side of that is we don't have 400 spots mm-hmm. in the festival for artists, so that's always kind of, that's the, the hard, disappointing part is having to turn, not turn people away, but like, you know, not program them this year, which doesn't mean that we don't sort of take note of people who have applied and maybe didn't get programmed. Um, we've definitely, you know, programmed people who haven't been in festivals but have applied before, um, you know, the next year or in projects outside of the, the flagship festival. Um, so the Open Artist Call-Out is really interesting because we see a lot of those names that maybe are still, you know, people who have still haven't done anything and that's great. But, oh my God, that sounded really not the way that I wanted to. But, you know, people who haven't had a chance to appear in an arts festival um, and that's really exciting to see come through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really important process and it's a really important part of it. Um, so we have a commitment to programming a certain percentage of our festival. Um, I'm trying to recall the number off the top of my head. I believe it might, it's 25% or thereabouts um, from the Open Artist Callout, which ensures that obviously those artists are being programmed. Usually we exceed that by uh, quite a bit, but that's, yeah, the minimum. 
It is so exciting because just going through the website and looking at the program and all the festival artists, you know, undoubtedly there are always names that you kind of know, but then there's also a bunch of names that, I mean, I'm unfamiliar with. And I think that, uh, you know, that kind of deliberate opening up space for people, as you said, that might not have Mm -hmm. been programmed in an arts festival before, I think is an incredible way to, you know, the the festival I think is an access point for um, a bunch of people that are kind of coming through, um, you know, that, that kind of arts world. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, the the program itself this year? You know, I know that you kind of saying before that you kind of had to, um, you know, you had you had a bunch of stuff in the bank from maybe a few years ago when you wanted to do some IRL programming. Mm-hmm. What's it been like to kind of go from you know last year you had a completely online EWF to programming um, IRL events again? Yeah, it's been interesting um, because obviously like this year the festival is a hybrid offering. It's mm. digital and IRL, like in person, and that was very deliberate um, and was kind of always going to be the case. Um, I think maybe you and I have talked about this before. I feel like I've been talking about this <laughs> um, a lot lately. But, you know, in 2019, my role at EWF was a digital producer role mm. and um, – that was sort of, I guess, introducing a way of rolling in DWF, the Digital Writers Festival, which was wrapping up that year into the flagship festival so that there was a bit more of a um, focus on digital offerings in EWF. And so last year we had a digital producer um, and, you know, they were going to have a set budget and a set um, sort of amount of room in the program to produce digital first, digital only offerings. And then of course we went fully digital for obvious reasons. Um, and that changed a little bit. So this year um, that role has shifted again into like an associate producer role. And so instead we're focusing on looking at things like we, we don't want to, I guess, separate the mm-hmm. two, the digital from the IRL. They're both, the festival, they're both important components of the festival. Um, so it's interesting going from, but it is interesting, yeah, going from doing everything completely online to being like, oh, we have venues to work with, you know, we have um, licenses and providers and all that sort of stuff that we need to figure out. Um, it has been refreshing, mm-hmm. I think, um, and, you know, getting out into spaces is exciting and really lovely and I but at the same time yeah it's it's not necessarily I don't know I don't necessarily look at them because they're as two separate entities and I don't know if that's really like an answer that makes sense to anyone else but in my brain I see them as you know the events are what they are and they they still have the same sort of lead up process of you know we have the concept um, and it's just about figuring out which delivery mode kind of best serves the event and the theme and the people who we hope will benefit from or enjoy attending them. So, mm. yeah. I think that's wonderful. I think these high, these hybrid modes of um, festival delivery are really exciting. As you said, well, I, we've kind of spoken about this before, but kind of 
you know, keeping a bunch of the wonderful uh, access that comes with having um, events online whilst also Mm. having the, I don't know, the magic of having uh, events in person as well. I think it's really exciting to see Mm. that this is a way that um, EWF is moving forward and I think a lot of arts festivals will be moving forward as well. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, yeah, I really do. Um, Let's talk a little bit about some of the events you've got, um, you know, your kind of Mm. staples of the festival, like the Writers Conference, Amazing Babes, which always kind of blows my mind um lunchtime lit can you tell me a little bit about uh the the program itself and and kind of what what yeah what we can expect yeah of course um so our program launched on the 11th so it's all up on the website and we had a beautiful event here at the wheeler center um i'm at the office today and that's um where i sit here at the um and so i think what i would like to sort of highlight is maybe the events that those artists are in because when we do the um, program launch, we feature artists who are obviously within the program. Um, So I think that gives a nice sort of mix of things. So, you know, you mentioned um, the uh, Writers' Conference, which is part of our professional development kind of thing. Um, So we're doing the National Writers' Conference. It's a one-day online event. Um, and it features our ambassadors, who I'm really excited that uh, we have incre- four incredible ambassadors this year. Um, so we have Tony Birch, Claire Coleman, Susanke Ntsmang, and uh, Elena Gomez, who will be giving, you know, their keynotes. Um, and then we also have quite a number of other sort of panels in that. But part of our offering for professional development are things like the Writers' Night School, um, so we have a really exciting event, uh, which is Writers' Night School Graphic Storytelling, which features me and me, who was one of our wonderful readers at the program launch. She did an incredible reading, um, but she's also a very talented graphic artist, so I'm very excited for that one. That's going to be in person. Um, Luke Patterson is, uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with, but he's a poet, uh, who is based in Sydney, I believe. Um, and he was at the program launch via a video that he pre-recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll be, you'd be able to see that on the website. Um, you'll be able to see the whole event on the website from the program launch. Um, and I think that gives a really nice sort of taste, I guess. Um, but he's hosting an online digital event, um, called Elemental which features uh, multidisciplinary artists uh, looking at the future of the planet, I guess, um, as a very <laughs> vague overview. So where we are, how we ended up, and where we may be going next. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the events that I kind of mentioned before, of you know, things that we've wanted to do for a while, but we kind of couldn't, couldn't figure out how to do it last year. And the thing that I find funny about that is that it's digital this year mm-hmm. and very purposely, but we just couldn't quite get it last year. We were just sort of not sure how to make it do the thing. And then we like sort of figured it out that we could do it this year in this way, um, which I think is it's just funny to reflect on personally. <laughs> um, and then we have some really great partnership events. Um, we have some new partnerships that we've uh, been working with Scienceworks uh, with the planetarium that they have there, which mm-hmm. is maybe um, my like 
very personal interest in, yeah, outer space sort of coming through there a bit maybe. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited about that. It's going to feature a full zone film and responses from two wonderful artists to that film mm, and that is so exciting anything science works so I'm like wow what a great partnership uh, I know too. <laughs> uh, it's something that I, am, I, I am still kind of can't believe it <laughs> I think it's something that the Emerging Writers Festival does incredibly well is you know being really in tune with um all of these incredible grassroots literary and kind of arts initiatives that exist in this country, you know, you're partnering with Incendium Radical Library, Datnawak, Thin Red mm-hmm. Lines, just to name a few. I suppose, can you talk about um, why it's so important to collaborate with these um, initiatives and kind of what that looks like this year? Yeah, I think um, it's important to give over space and resources and our re- biggest resource that we have is our program. Right. Um, and we operate with not a huge budget, but we can still hand over some of that too. So those three that you mentioned there are actually part of the EWS X series. And, and I don't know if you also mentioned Dreaming Disability Justice, but that is also one of the collectives. So we have four collectives who are, um, you know, putting on events. Oh, the IRL. And then, uh, Sex Work in Space is, sorry, the fourth. Um, IRL is separate to EWSX. But, you know, we give over part of our program uh, and budget with that to people to, for them to be able to cater to their communities because I think there's this weird thing of, like, writing and storytelling is very one very specific thing um, and it's just not. Um, I love novels, we all do, but, you know, there's more to it than that. Um, yeah, and I think the EWSX program is really special. Um, I was part of it a couple of years ago as well, and it just is a really beautiful way to just invite people in, um, you know. Uh, and then we also have, it's not an EWSX event, but we have a gathering called Nexus, a gathering, <laughs> um, and it's running on the last day of the festival, um, and that was a um, a mix of something that I have personally wanted to do for a really long time um, as a person of colour working in the arts, um, you know, wanting to create a space to come together with my peers, um, but it was also something that came out of the open artist call-out. Lots of people were sort of... Um, hungry for a space to connect with one another um, and that is one of the parts of the festival that I'm personally most excited about mm. um, and I think it's yeah it's about allowing people space to create and tell their stories and connect mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh, the Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival. Um, Ruby, it's something that we've spoken about before, but, you know, I think there might be some people that are listening that might be nervous to identify as a writer or, you know, even an emerging writer. <clears throat> what advice do you have for people that are interested in stepping into these spaces but might be nervous to kind of to, to claim writer or, you know, emerging writer? Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I think it comes up a lot, um, and it's funny, I think it comes up almost regardless of where you see yourself as a writer, whether you see yourself as not a writer or an emerging writer or 
um, you know, I, it's funny with the applications, sometimes I look through and people have nominated themselves as an emerging writer, whereas I would consider them mid-career or established, um, which is just like an aside. Um, but I think it's very easy to not, to, to say that you're not a writer, but like I was saying, you know, storytelling and writing is so many things. And I think if you write, whether you write in a, your notes app or a journal, or if you write, you know, essays and articles, you're a writer and you're interested in telling stories and recording your thoughts and connecting with people on some level. Mm. And so what I would, what my advice would be, would be to, <laughs> it says it's really come along, but it's true. Mm. Like we have lots of free events um, that people can come to and it's like, I hope at least that they're not intimidating because I totally understand that and I still get intimidated by going to, you know, ask things, but I find, you know, everyone's quite friendly and open um, and also no one, I think, and this is maybe my own thing, but I don't think anyone thinks it's odd at a writer's event for people to just be quiet if you know what I mean, like if they just want to hang out and watch but maybe not interact, that's totally fine and no one's really surprised by that or put off or anything. So what I would sort of say would be if you haven't been involved in a writer's anything, whether it's a festival or a one-off event, like I would say maybe come to some of the lunchtime literature events which are held in Reading State Library, you know, things where you can hear from other people, other writers, whether they're established or mid-career or emerging. Um, and then, you know, head along to some performance events as well. We have a huge, uh, wonderful offering of late-night literature events, which are free as well. Um, so I would go to those and then walk into, you know, maybe attending some professional development things, whether that's the National Writers Conference or some of the master classes or writers' night schools, which are kind of smaller, um, sort of more focused on specific mm-hmm. practices. Um, I would, yeah, it's really easy to just say, just go and do it. But I understand that it's it can be intimidating, but you're a writer <laughs> if you write. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I know it sounds really silly. No, but, I agree. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it kind of is, right? It's just as simple as that. Mm. Um, Ruby, yeah. thank you so much um, for your time and for putting together this incredible program. It's always, yeah, really wonderful to, to chat with you and congratulations. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, always a pleasure. That was Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh there, the Emerging Writers Festival Artistic Director, speaking about their 2021 program, which is up on their website. Now you can check it out by emergingwritersfestival.org.au. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
A History of My Brief Body is a collection of personal essays from internationally acclaimed writer, poet and scholar Billy Ray Belcourt. Uh, Billy Ray, writer and scholar from the Drift Pile Cree Nation um, and joins me on the line now. Uh, Billy, thank you so much for your time. Um, Billy, would you like to start with a reading? Yes, I would be happy. This is from an essay called Robert. Fixed in the pale light of an overhead tent, sprawled across a mattress on the floor. You are so motionless, Robert. It looks as though you're a painting ruled by sentiment. I hope you're capable of such grace so that I too can be. We, two men of no aesthetic significance, engineered beauty from stolen time with our lumbering bodies. All my psyche can hold is the past, present, and future tense of this moment. I lie down beside you, the sheets rustling beneath us as though we've made a forest floor of our yearnings. I want to live a whole human life in this bedroom of wet hands, where, for evenings at a time, the world starts and ends without celebration or remorse. What I know, we aren't running away. The eyes are too hungry for their own good. There is yellow of endless gradations. I want to see you tiptoe into all of them. Beside you, bound together in the same puny blaze, there is little to believe in besides the promise of our infinite luminosity. Dozing off, it occurs to me that if there is a corrective to the problem of my existential loneliness, it is this study of light. Uh. Beautiful. Uh, Billy Ray Belcourt there reading from A History of My Brief Body. Uh, Billy, you open this collection with an author's note that you use um, poetry and theory to create a, a kind of memoir that stretches well beyond the boundaries of my individual life. Can you tell me a bit about that decision? Yeah, when I was writing the various essays that would make up this book, I kept being confronted by the impossibility of adequately accounting for those with whom I came into contact, whether that that meant various random men I met on dating apps or family members, loved ones. And so poetry and theory allowed me to tap into something other than facts, which can be so unemotional. And so uh, with imagery with conjecture, I could, in a way, uh, tap into another kind of emotional orientation to the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. I, I believe this is your first um, nonfiction book, and you know I've yep. read some of your poetry previously. I, I'm interested in how you kind of make that decision um, on which mode of, of writing or which kind of method you'll use to explore your ideas. Yeah, I see the three books as being a part of one poetic practice or project. And so the operative question across those books is, in what ways do we as Indigenous people exceed the violence in which we are still bound up? And with this book, I wanted more deliberately to account for my own specific experiences of racism, of resistance, of love, of heartbreak, and to show that 
what happens in a singular life resonates with a kind of collective experience of, of both trauma and rebellion. Mm-hmm. And, a, a, you know, if you read the book from start to finish, you'll notice that I almost abruptly change forms <laughs> and genres and modes. And I think I wanted to honor the, the various ways that memories came back to me, you know, in a fragmented way without linearity, without rules really. Mm. Yeah. I really like that. Cause it feels like, you know, it's often hard to kind of speak or think about memoir or nonfiction writing, I think, without having an opinion on, you know, like the fallibility of memory and that it is fragmented. And um, as you said, it can come back to you in many ways. And that, you know, I think in some ways memory is a privilege. And I think yeah. it's really interesting speaking about this this mix of kind of um, modes of, of writing as a way to tell something true. I'm interested in how you think kind of switching between, and you've kind of spoken about this, but how you feel switching between these modes can kind of bring you closer to your truth. Mm-hmm. I think of the one essay that's made up of prose poems in the book called Futuromania, which I wrote with the intention of examining a more generalized condition of mourning that Indigenous people and other racialized populations, queer and trans people, experience. And and that is the general grief of being a world and being in a world that we did not build for ourselves and nonetheless having to make do inside it. And I decided to write those series that, that essay in the more poetic register because I thought that what mattered was that I wanted the writing. And though this is very, um, hopeful and and maybe impossible but i wanted the writing to change the feeling of being in a body Mm. and in a way that a more general essay or journalistic reporting doesn't usually and if with writing i can change the experience of being in a body then perhaps that can alert a reader to the possibility of another world. Mm, I love that. Um, I feel like you're, you know, you kind of touched on this, but like your work really pushes against this, you know, legacy of colonial violence. And I'm interested when you're kind of pushing against the project of uh, colonialism in your work, I think what we see as a reader is this like, yeah, a huge effort to push back on narratives, which, you know, have been deliberately mistold, untold, uh, misrepresented, not represented at all. Yeah. I'm interested how you kind of grapple with this when thinking about that memory and perhaps counter to that forgetting. Mm-hmm. To speak generally, I think, and others have thought this as well, Colonial nations, of which there are many still, generally have cultures of amnesia mm-hmm. or historical ignorance. Because to avow one's 
wrongdoings implicates a present population. And that has consequences not just for the heads of state or for politicians, but for a citizenry. Mm. How a citizenry thinks of itself as ethical or morally good depends on the story it tells itself and it is told beginning from, of course, primary education. Um, and part of the project of the book is to experiment in this more accusatory tenor and to to name names, so to speak, and to locate blame and in the service of a culture of, of remembering, one that that doesn't try to bury the past in living people. Mm. Yeah, it is, um, I suppose, the job of, of reminding or um, making known the truth of history and present is is huge, particularly when you are pushing back against these very deliberate ideas of a, a certain history, um, a certain existence, a, a false one. You know, I'm interested in kind of doing that work, how you kind of care for yourself and, and you know, your ideas of self and kind of how you make decisions in, in what, what goes on the page and what you can kind of keep for yourself. That's a good question. And it's one that sometimes comes to me after the writing. <laughs> uh, you know, the book is out in the world and I still have moments of, of panic <laughs> about how much I've revealed about myself. And I think that when I write in this personal autobiographical mode, I'm concerned less with revealing too much according to some politics of respectability and more so interested in the possibility of reaching someone, mm. another queer indigenous person perhaps who has endured similar experiences of loss and grief and heartbreak. And in seeing the, my life as proximal to theirs, a reflection of, of theirs, that one can be less lonely. Mm. So that's what matters more to me, I think. Yeah, that's um, that's a very admirable kind of um, yeah aim for your work, and it's it seems like a very big one as well. But I'm sure is reaching so many people that you want it to reach. You know, I do want to talk as well. Like there is so much joy in your book. There's so much pleasure, kind of despite it all. Uh, despite some of these kind of larger forces that we're talking about, you know, specifically around queer joy and, and sexual pleasure and sexual exploration. Um, I, I'm interested again, like what's the personal consequence of writing about these parts of your life? I think I am fortunate to have academic freedom. <laughs> <laughs> I teach in a creative writing program. Um, and also that most of my family does not read my work. <laughs> um, or they would have very clear depictions of me and sexual activity, which is not fun to think about. <laughs> but again, I think of um, a number of books that I've loved and have changed some aspect of my personhood and these are queer books and books that depict some aspect of, of queer sexuality and queer pleasure and 
Giovanni's Room, for example, mm. Garth, Garth Greenwell's work, um, and how as a closeted teen and then like a semi-closeted young adult have these moments of, of have these moments in literature in a way vitalized me. And again, that's like a big sociological aim and one that I can never really know if it's successful, but that's, that's what excites me and, and fuels me. Um, but I also, you know, I also have to negotiate the ethics of writing about others and, and, you know, I'm in a, in a relationship right now where there's a, a boundary has been set about what can, you know, be written about the relationship. And I think, you know, I, I honor that and that's something that I have to negotiate with in, in you know, into the future. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, if you have just joined us, we are chatting with Billy Ray Belcourt uh, all about a history of my brief body. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about Jose Esteban Munoz. Um, can you, you know, he plays a really big role in your work and your writing. Can you tell me a little bit about his influence on your work? I first read his work in late 2015 or early 2016, he had already passed ab- abruptly and and far too soon. And from the first sentence of the book Cruising Utopia, I I knew that this was going to be someone who would be an intellectual forebearer or whatever. And uh, his argument that queerness in and of itself was a kind of future bearing experience or subject position, like really shifted things for me intellectually, Mm -hmm. because as we know, part of the discourse of homophobia and transphobia are to, are to deny us the, the, the promise of futurity. And he also Locases specifically in communities of color, in his you know in his his case was, uh, you know Latinx communities. But his his thinking was so spacious it had resonance for others like indigenous queer indigenous people too. And I feel like now and I'm always trying to honor that sense of kinship, intellectual kinship, and. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever not do that. Mm. I suppose just speaking on that, are there, can you tell me about some other writers that have kind of informed this work? And I know you spoke about Jose and also, you know, James Baldwin just before. But, you know, what kind of um, writers were you uh, reading when you were kind of going through this writing process? Mm-hmm. Maggie Nelson's a big influence, her blending of theory and autobiography. Um Someone, I, maybe this is tangential, but someone once I saw a reader report or a reader review that said that um, Maggie Nelson had done it better <laughs> than I did, and you know I you know I don't deny that I, that's <laughs> the Argonauts is is a phenomenal work and you know one that I think will stand stand the test of time, um, and I was thinking a lot about Claudia Rankine's Citizen and it's a cu- accumulative 
um, structure, how things build up over the course of the book, not necessarily narratively, but thematically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. I had also been, of course, and continue to be indebted to Ocean Vong's a body of work and the, uh, you know, and those who influenced him, who are, you know, doing this kind of queer mm-hmm. genealogy, Richard Sykin, I, I, I read after um, Bong and noticing the, the, the lines of, of inspiration there and um, various indigenous writers here in North America, like Lely Long Soldier and, and Jordan Abel, who are pressurizing the English language, seeing what can be felt and, and uh, reclaimed and what, what can't be. Mm. Um, Billy Ray Belcourt, it's been such a, um honour to chat to you about your work and congratulations uh, on the book and thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, such a pleasure. Um, that was Billy Ray Belcourt speaking all about a history of my brief body. It is out now in Australia via the University of Queensland Press. Hey, it's time for me to get on out of here. do want to say a big thanks to my guests for today. Uh, of course, Ruby Rose Pivot Marsh for chatting to me all about this year's Emerging Writers Festival program. You can check it out online at emergingwritersfestival.org.au. And of course, I want to say a big thank you to Billy Ray Belcourt for chatting to me all about the history of my brief body, really incredible collection of personal essays. It is out now through UQP. Keep it locked to Triple R. I'll be back with you next Wednesday afternoon. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website.